0: If you have your Bibles turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8, let's get after it tonight. We're going to study this entire chapter. Uh, and I want to tell you, as I've been studying this chapter all week long, and really before this week, uh, God has impressed upon me. And here, this church, I, I believe that this is not only a, one of the most important chapters in all of Israel's history. I mean, this is the one of the most uh, profound turning moments for them as a nation. But this is important for us to hear tonight. Because it's important for us to hear tonight, I want to say kindly, let's let's try our best to turn off our cell phones and and, uh, deal with the kids appropriately and wisely throughout the sermon. And let's make sure, let's make sure that we tune in because this narrative has something for us tonight. The title of the message is this, A King in God's Place. A King in God's Place. When Jenny and I got married in 2006, uh, we didn't want to have kids right away. Had we known we would have struggled for four and a half years, we would have got started right when we said, I do. But we delayed that a little bit and and about six months into our marriage, we thought, you know what? If we're not going to have any offspring right now, we can try out having a dog. I grew up in an anti-dog home. Anything with four legs was created by the devil. It's amazing how that my sister came along, became 16 years old as the baby of the family, and all of a sudden dogs are okay. But to me and my brother, nope, it was always a no answer. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to just do what my parents never let me do, because I can. About the time we were thinking about a dog, we were on our way back from Garden City. When my sister sent me a text, this is back when we had the pet shop in the southwest or the Southgate uh, Mall, or the Southgate Hall, as I used to call it. Um, and she sent a picture of this dog, and my reply was, what is that? And she said, it is, it is a breed of, of dog, that it, it, it's, a half bre- it, it's half puggle, no, half beagle, and half pug. It was called a puggle. And it was one of those dogs, if I'm lying, I'm dying, it's, it was so ugly that it was cute. You've seen them kind of human babies, too. They're so ugly. It's like, man, you're so ugly, you're cute. We don't have any in our church, for sure. But, um, so when she sent that, we went right to the, right to the pet shop and we got back. And, and man, that dog was so cute in the window. Dogs are cute in the window, aren't they? And then we took the dog home. And we named it Barbara Ann. My wife liked the Beach Boys. And so we named it Barbara Ann. And um, we figured out real quick that the concept of a dog is a lot cuter than the commitment to a dog. You know what I mean? So the dog didn't know how to go to the bathroom outside on its own. We didn't have a doggy door and so we had to take it every time. Not only that, but But when I came home for lunch, oftentimes I'd be wearing nice dress slacks and I would sit down on the couch just enjoying my lunch, totally filled with the spirit of God. And I would get up, look down at my slacks and I'd instantly be filled with the flesh as I got all kinds of dog hair all over me that I didn't ask for. And we went we went through hundreds of lint rollers. Not only that, but our lifestyle is very busy and we travel and things like that. And so I figured out real quick that you just can't keep a puppy by itself for like four days. You got to get a dog sitter. And, and, and we quickly found out that, that the dog was cute in the window. But not once we brought it home. It loses its cuteness real quick. Can I get an amen right there? All right. Some of you disagree with me. You already turned me off because you like dogs and I don't. But, I'll pray for you. Here's what we figured out, church. Listen, we got what we wanted, but we didn't want what we got. And there's perhaps not a more miserable thing to experience in in life than to get something you want only to realize you don't want what you got. Such was the case with the Israelites in this text, except what they wanted was something far more consequential than a dog. What they wanted was a king. The reason why this was so consequential was because God was their king. They were the only theocracy in all of the world, among all these other monarchies. But they didn't want that anymore. They wanted an earthly king in God's place and unfortunately brother tanner's going to preach next sunday night as i'm going to be gone preaching a revival but they got their king and he'll preach on that and they quickly realized that the concept of a king was a lot cuter than a commitment to a king they got what they wanted but they didn't want what they got here's the question of the text how do we keep that from happening in our lives no i believe first samuel was preserved in scripture To teach us how to keep ourselves from making the same mistake as the Israelites did when they put a king in God's place. So tonight we're going to study the process of replacing God. We're going to see that when God is replaced for another king in our life, it's usually because of a combination of three things. Number one, worldliness. Number two, faithlessness. And number three, stubbornness. Let's talk about the first. Replacing God begins with worldliness. Would you read the first five verses of chapter 8? And it came to pass, listen closely please, when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel and the name of his second Abiah. They were judges in Beersheba. And his sons walked not in his ways but turned aside after lucre and took bribes and perverted judgment Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel under Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. At this time in Israel's history, we just read it, Samuel was old. And his sons were wicked. Now this concerned the elders of Israel. Who were the elders? Well, they were very influential men in Israel who, who were each leaders of their individual tribes. Politically, they were the spokesperson for their tribes. And as they viewed the landscape of their present leadership and their future leadership, hey, they didn't like what they saw. And in some ways that was warranted. Samuel was getting older. And his succession plan wasn't working out because his, his sons didn't amount to anything spiritually. They were totally unqualified to be the leaders of God's people. And so when the elders saw this, they were concerned. And, and they, they, they brought Samuel together for a meeting. And here's the cl- conclusion they came to. They needed to change their entire leadership structure. The solution was, give us a king. Now, this is important. Their request for a king wasn't wrong in and of itself. God already told them, if you study Deuteronomy chapter 17, that he would eventually give them one. The problem rested in their motive for wanting a king. Did you catch the end of verse 5? Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. It's repeated in verse 20, look at it. That we may also be like all the nations. Their motive was they wanted to be like everybody else. Now, what's the problem with that? Here's the problem. Israel was not just any other nation. They were God's chosen people. And God made it clear after he took them out of Egyptian bondage and he wrote the law, he made it clear in Leviticus chapter 20 that he expected them to be set apart as he set them apart. Look at this verse on the screen. Ye shall therefore, put it up there, Brother Dustin, keep all my statutes, And all my judgments and do them, that the land whither I bring you to dwell there and spew you not out. And watch this. And ye shall not walk in the manners of the nation, which I cast out before you. For they committed all these things, and therefore I abhorred them. And ye shall be, what's that next word out loud? Holy. Holy. What does that mean? Set apart, separated unto me. For I, the Lord, am holy. And watch this. And have severed you from other people that ye should be mine. It doesn't get any clearer than that. God says, I chose you at a nation. I severed you. I, I separated and took you apart and made you holy unto me. Yet Israel got to the point, watch this, where they wanted to identify more with their culture than they did with their God. And the way in which they were wanting to do that was by matching everybody else's form of government. Now you have to catch this. It was actually their unique form of government, their theocracy, not their monarchy, that set them apart from other nations. It was that very thing that allowed God to get glory from them as a nation. You know why? Because all these organized, big, powerful armies led by these physical, experienced warrior kings had to look on as these ragtag group of farmers led by their commander and general God himself, the invisible king of kings, decimated all these powerful armies with these ragtag group of farmers. Thus they would have to conclude God's their king and God's worthy to be followed. It was their difference that made a difference. But they didn't want that anymore. They got tired of being different. And they became enamored with what the worldly nations around them were doing. One scholar said this, Israel traded their true glory as God's distinct people for status in the eyes of the world. How does that apply to us? Well, you look over to the book of 1 Peter 2 verse 9 and we're called the chosen people too. Now we are not as a nation, as an individual child of God. Look at this verse, but ye are a chosen generation. A royal priesthood and holy nation. That's not just in the book of Leviticus. You are a peculiar people. Why? That ye should sow forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now I can use some amens right here. What a privilege it is to be called God's people. For Christ to make us a holy nation, to be chosen and called by Him to be peculiar so that we might show forth His praises to a lost and dying world. In other words, it is a privilege to be different so that we might make a difference. Yet we're just like the children of Israel. We get tired of being different. We get tired of being peculiar. We get tired of being holy, so we reject that call and we choose rather to blend in. We would rather keep in step with our culture and fit into the molds of our society. And here's the point I'm making. We too can very easily become worldly. We can trade the privilege, watch here, we can trade the privilege of peculiarity for status in the eyes of the world simply because we are just tired of being different. And I know if you, don't, if you think I'm up here on a pedestal as a pastor and I live in this different world from you. No, no, listen to me. I know how, how tiring it can be to, to be peculiar. Not because I'm like a natural weirdo. I know I am. But, you know, I'm not giving you like justification for being a weird dude. All right. You need to figure that out and fix it. But, but I'm talking about being peculiar as in you're a child of God and you live like it. You get the difference? We don't invite like hatred on us because we're weird and annoying and obnoxious, but simply because we're living for God. It it came to light so clearly for me as a parent this last summer. When for the first time in my nine-year-old's life and in my life as well, Kevin was on a traveling baseball team. And and they asked me to help coach. I, I couldn't be a head coach, but I was the assistant coach. And I told the coach, I, I, I said, hey, I will be committed to as many practices as we can. We will go to as many tournaments as we can. But I, I've got to tell you from the get go that, that we, we won't play on Sundays. We won't play. And I'm a pastor. And plus, I just really believe that my son needs to be in church on those days. And, and he respected that. And, and, and I'm so thankful for, for his spirit in that. It was a blessing. And we went and we played these tournaments, but man was, was my convictions put to the test. Because Sunday is the, it's the championship day. Now we weren't good enough to make the championship, but we could at least play in that bracket. In the baseball world, traveling baseball world, that, those are the games that really mattered. And, and, and so for Kevin to give it his all on Friday night and give it his all on Saturday, and the other kid's going to go to the swimming pool at the hotel on Saturday night, eat together on Sunday, play sports on Sunday, then I have to take him back on Saturday night. You don't think there were some hard conversations? My nine-year-old loves sports. And he loves competition and he loves camaraderie. And I thought, I mean, telling the coach at the beginning of the season was easy. But looking at my son's face when he had to pack his bags and come in the truck and go home was not easy. And I'm tempted in my mind and say, okay, I I get two or three Sundays a year, I'll just take those vacations. I'm I'm just being honest with you. I'm thinking in my mind, we'll just take vacation. And then God hit me with something. Little decisions like that as a parent, motivated by the world, motivated by, by looking at all the other nations around me, all the other parents around me, all the other kids around me, that kind of motivation is never a good motivation to make a decision. Even as an adult. And God God spoke to me and said, if you do that now with something little, here's what you're telling Kevin. It's okay to replace God as your king with sports. And and listen, growing up in 2020, growing up in our culture is going to be hard enough for my nine-year-old son to keep God number one. I don't need to make it any easier for him to run away from God. I was sitting down two weeks ago with, with some parents whose kids are now adults in our church. These parents are in our church and they raised their kids. And they were so honest with Jenny and I. As they said, "You know what? We should have never let our kids date so early." I said, "Why?" They said, "Because we were motivated by it. we just wanted them to fit in. We just wanted them to find a place we didn't think it was harmful, and they admitted to us that that motivation was wrong because it, it led uh, their kid to, to, to replace God with a boy for a season in their life, and grace has redeemed that, and it's awesome to see them now. But, but those parents humbly admitted to us that, that they, they helped their child dethrone God in their life. Potsy and I went and ate last week, Um. And he paid for lunch. Can you believe that? That is unbelievable. That deserves a round. Yeah, Randy's Randy's clapping for you. But they they have they can't believe that. I was in shock, too, when he said, I'll get the bill. Absolutely in shock. I mean, I knew he could talk a lot. I didn't know he's generous. And and me and him were talking. I love our our, honestly, I love our conversations and we get to get to hang out. And, and, and he was saying something that he was burned about with 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 the inability of a lot of people to handle their finances. And I said, Patsy, why do you think that is? And he said, you, you know, why I think it is, Pastor, because I think people want to keep up with the Joneses. Yeah. And we've heard that kind of sprinkled around. It's kind of a cliche or whatever. But you know what that is? It is people looking around at all the other nations. Their houses, their cars, their kids' shoes and their kids' outfits and the vacations they get to take. And mom and dads look around and they put their kids in certain outfits and put their kids in certain shoes and put their kids in certain activities and spend a ton of money doing it. Not because the kid is demanding it, but because they want to fit in. No, I'm passionate tonight. I am. You know why? Because this text is a mirror to us. We are to see ourselves in this narrative. This is prescribed for us. This is uh, preserved for us to read today so that we won't make the same mistake. Are you listening, to my friends? Amen. It begins with worldliness. And here's what you need to realize worldliness doesn't happen overnight. That's why Romans 12 says this, verse 1 be not conformed to this world. You know, conformity is not overnight, conformity is methodic and it's slow. That is proven in Daniel chapter 1 when King Nebuchadnezzar took Daniel and the Hebrew boys. And he indoctrinated him in Babylonian culture. They didn't do that in 24 hours. You know what they did? They changed their names to Babylonian names. They taught them Babylonian literature and customs and culture And then they introduced them to a Babylonian diet, all in efforts to slowly and methodically get them to be like the world and conform to the Babylonian way of life. Listen, my friends, the the devil will not make you worldly overnight. It'll be a slow, methodic process of conforming to the world. It'll come through media and social media and entertainment and and friends and and politics and and other, other means that the devil uses to slowly conform your mind to that of the world that gets you looking around at all the other nations and say, you know what, I'm tired of being different. I'm tired of being holy. I'm tired of saying no to my kid when everybody else says yes. I'm tired of giving my tithe and offering when everybody else seems to live off 100% and they do just fine. I'm tired of seeking first the kingdom of God. I'm tired of all that. I'm tired of giving my time to the ministry. Serving in children's church, serving on a bus route, serving as a greeter. I'm tired of showing up to church early and leaving church late. I'm tired of coming on a Sunday night when I already come on a Sunday morning. I'm just tired of being different. And that is the first step to replacing God as king. But it only begins there. It continues with this faithlessness. Continuing the text, verse number six. But the thing displeased Samuel. When they said, give us a king to judge us. And so Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, hearken unto the voice of the people and all that they say unto thee. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me. That I should not reign over them according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, under this, even unto this day, wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods, so, they, so do they also unto thee. Now look up here. If someone came to you and said, you're old and your kids are worthless, step aside. That'd probably displease you, right? That wouldn't disarm you. You would probably get offended. So, so Samuel was displeased and he went and talked to God about it. And, and I love what God reassured him. He said, Samuel, it's not you. Now parents, listen to me. Grandparents, listen to me. Spiritual leaders, listen to me. Coaches, listen to me. Teachers, listen to me. When somebody rejects your spiritual influence in their life, it's not you they're rejecting. And I know a lot of parents hurt because of that. And a lot of grandparents hurt because of that. And we take it very personal. But if you've done everything you can do, as imperfect as you are, if you've done everything you can do to bring them up to the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and they still reject it, they are not rejecting you. God said, they're rejecting me. And he said, this is nothing new. They've been behaving this way since I rescued them out of Egyptian bondage. They've always demanded golden calves and strong armies. And guaranteed water and food and safe land conditions in order to feel secure. I've never been enough for them. I want you to really think about their rejection of God for an earthly king. Listen to this. No other king, I mean no other nation, had a king that literally used verbs and adjectives to win a war. Did that sink in? No other nation had a king that led them. By, by a pillar of fire at night and cloud by day or parted bodies of water during flood seasons to, to, to bring them over on safe passage. No other nation had a king that stopped the sun so that, it, so that the day could be prolonged uh, long enough for them to win a war. No other nation had a king that destroyed a fortified city by telling its people to simply walk around it and blow a trumpet. No other nation had a king that whittled his army down to 300 and still dominated the enemy. Israel had that king. But it wasn't good enough. They were tired of this unorthodox way of fighting. I don't want a trumpet. I want a spear. I don't want to walk. I want to charge somebody with a sword. You know what they wanted? They wanted to know what their king was going to do. They were were tired of having to guess what God was going to do next. They want predictability, tangibility, security that they were convinced came with having an earthly king. And God said it's a rejection of him. They didn't say that. You understand that, right? They didn't confess they were rejecting God. They didn't think they were. God said, no, 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 you don't think you're rejecting me, but you are rejecting me. It wasn't a total rejection as if they didn't want anything to do with God. It was a rejection through demanding that God give them some other source of security. Both are forms of rejection, by the way. Follow me, church. Irreligious people, they reject God by not wanting to be a part of their life outright at all. But religious people like Israel and like us, we reject God by still letting him be part of our life, but not trusting him completely. We say, I want to follow God. I just don't want to depend on him alone. I want him to be part of my life, just not the main part. So I began to think about this and I read how Another pastor described this condition uh, with with the analogy of of repelling down a hundred foot rock face. We don't know much about rock faces in liberal. But go with me. Imagine you're going to repel and so you get the proper equipment on the helmet and the right shoes and you get the harness and you get the rope. What is the first thing you're going to do once you get to the rock face in order to repel? Well, they tell me, I don't know, never done it, don't plan on doing it. But, but they've told me that you've got to lean back. And upon leaning back, you've got to fully commit to that rope, keeping you from falling to the ground. And then you've got to push off the rock face and repel maybe 15 or 20 feet at a time. If you were like me, here would be your tendency. Instead of leaning back and jumping off, trusting that rope completely, here's what you do, you find the nearest foothold. Get, get a little comfortable, hold on to the rope. Find the next foothold. Get a little comfortable. Find the next foothold. What you would do if you're like me is you wouldn't repel. You would rock climb with repelling equipment. There's a difference. Rock climbing takes the rope and just slowly climbs down. Repelling totally relies on the rope. Now watch this, watch this. This is a picture of what's happening with Israel. They weren't repelling. They were rock climbing. They wanted a new king, but they still wanted God as their safety net. They got tired of leaning completely on a king that they couldn't see or control. Here's what they got tired of living, by faith. And God rightly calls this a rejection because everything about his character says that he's perfectly trustworthy. Now this is not just an ancient Israelite problem. This is our problem too. Is it not easier? Let me reason with you for a moment. Is it not easier to trust God as your king when you have everything that you feel like you need in your life right in front of you? Your job is secure, your marriage is fulfilling, your kids are behaving, and everyone you care about is healthy. But when one of those things is missing, just one, do you not have this feeling of insecurity or anxiety or unhappiness? I mean, wouldn't it be easier to, to trust God and follow Him if you had some kind of, I don't know, like binding legal guarantee of what He would do? I got to thinking about that. You could imagine some, some sort of guaranteed overdraft protection on your bank account so that when you were out of money, it would automatically dip into God's account. That would be neat. He owns a cattle on a thousand hills, a songwriter says. Or maybe you would like like a little bit of God medical insurance card that, that got in the mail and said, you may get sick temporarily, but will always be miraculously healed. That's not how God works in our life. Following God as our king requires faith without sight. But like Israel, we get tired of living by faith and we don't reject God outright. You're still here at church tonight. I'm still preaching behind a pulpit. We just trust in other little K kings more. And then we just try to keep God around as our safety net. Would you hear me, church? Every person, every person in here has a king. A king in your life is whatever you must have in order to be happy and secure. For some of you, it is God. But for others, it's success and accomplishment. And for some, it's money and financial stability. For some, it's good health. For some, your king is your spouse and your kids, your stuff, your hobby, your job, your coping mechanism. We like these kings and here's why. We can control them. We can see them. We can feel them. We can easily access them. We can manipulate them. They bring instant gratification, yet we still want to partially lean on God just in case. And God is saying to us the same thing he told Israel. You are faithlessly rejecting me. And here's why. You won't let me reign over you, but you still expect me to rescue you. This kind of life takes no faith. And it's the second step in the process of replacing God. It begins with worldliness. It continues with faithlessness. But Israel's decision to put a king in God's place, listen to me, it didn't finalize with their faithlessness. No, because God told Samuel in verse 9, okay, listen to him. We're going to give them what they want if they insist on having it. But first, as a measure of my grace, please warn them of what they're going to get if I give them a king. And so Samuel does that. Praise the Lord for the Samuels in our life. Look at verse 10. And Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people. Would you follow along with me, please? That asked of him a king. And he said, this will be the man or the king that shall reign over you. Now, it doesn't get any clearer than this. He will take your sons. Now I want you to, I want you to try to pay attention to one word that is dominant in all these verses and I'm going to ask you what it is. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself. For his chariots, and to be his horsemen, and some shall run before his chariots. And he will appoint him captains over thousands, and captains over fifties, and will set them to ear his ground, and to reap his harvest, and to make his instruments of war, and instruments of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be confectionaries, and to be cooks, and to be bakers. And he will take your fields, and your vineyards, and your olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. And he will take the tenth of your seed, and of your vineyards, and give to his officers, and to his servants. And he will take your men servants, and your maid servants, and your goodliest young men and your asses and put them to his work, He will take the tenth of your sheep, and he shall be his servants, and ye shall cry out in that day because of your king, which ye shall have chosen you, which ye, sh- ye shall have chosen you, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. What is the dominant word in his description of a king? Take: take. The king will take your sons and daughters, he will take your crops and lands, he will take the best years of, their, of your life, and he will exploit them for himself. Now watch this, the irony is tremendous. The Israelites took, uh, they they looked for a king to guarantee prosperity and security. Yet what they're going to receive instead is a king who would take those very things from them. They wanted a king whom they could control. Instead, the king ends up controlling them. This is an Old Testament version of a New Testament principle. And it's this, when you have kings in your life besides God, those kings do not save you. They tyrannize you. Somebody needs to hear this tonight. Whatever you depend upon for happiness and security, your king is what you will become enslaved to. If you have to be successful to find fulfillment, you become the slave of success. You overwork. You get jealous of other successful people. You resent others uh, for their opportunities and their promotions and their praise. You are absolutely devastated when people talk about you without giving you due credit and recognizing your value. We say, we, we say this, certain people are driven by success. But I believe a better way to say it is people are enslaved by success. Success drives us until we destroy our families and destroy our health and destroy our very lives. If you have to have some physical escape to release stress or feel relaxed, I often ask people, why do you smoke or why do you drink or why do you party on the weekends or why do you take those pills even though you're not truly hurting? And a lot of them say, I've got to, I got to have it to deal with things in my life. But what you use to release a little stress or feel relaxed can quickly enslave you. It starts as an enjoyable escape that you can control, but it ends up as a tyrant that controls you. And the type of escape varies. It can be pornography, it can be drugs or alcohol or spending money or overeating, but the pattern is the same. It begins as something, watch here, that you can go to on your own terms to escape the tedium of your day, but then you begin to crave it and more of it and worse types of it, and you cannot turn the drive off. The physical pleasure you once mastered quickly masters you and it ruins your relationship and it literally sours every aspect of your life. You said, would you give to me? And it does nothing but take. If you have to be married to be happy, you become the slave of marriage. You feel miserable all the time if you're, if you're single. You live with depression because you're alone. You make bad relationship decisions and end up dating terrible people and doing foolish things. Here's the point that Samuel's trying to get across to the Israelites. Watch. Kings make all their subjects servants, kings take from you what you thought they'd give to you. Now, somebody needs to say amen to that straightforward warning. What a sermon! Surely clear and obvious truth would change the minds and hearts of the Israelites. Surely it would dawn on them that their desire for a king is now foolish. Yet look at how the narrative ends in verse 19 and 20. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, nay. But we will have a king over us that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people and rehearsed them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, okay, give them what they want. Hearken unto their voice, pay attention, and make them a king. And Samuel said unto the men of Israel, go ye every man unto his city. This, watch here, is where replacing God culminates. It starts with worldliness, it continues with faithlessness, and it culminates with stubbornness. We are warned by the Samuels in our life, and yet we still say, nay, give me my king. Is God not so gracious with us? That, 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 that when we demand of him a king... We've gotten worldly and even faithless and rejected his authority in our life. And we just want to use him as kind of a a safety net and a rescue type individual in our life in case of emergency. He is so gracious to still at that point try to influence us away from replacing him. Oh, listen, God doesn't have to do that with you. And he doesn't have to do that with me, but here's how he does it. He sends a Samuel in your life in the form of a parent, a grandparent, a teacher, a coach, a spiritual leader a pastor, a youth pastor, their wives, a sibling, a coworker, a boss, somebody that knows the Lord and is going to try to steer you away from that foolish path. Sometimes God won't send a clear Samuel in your life in that way. You know, some other times he will send an example in your life of somebody that's actually doing life right. And he will introduce you to that person and they'll never have to say a word to you. You'll just look at their life and understand that they are finding their security and happiness in the Lord Jesus Christ as their king. And God is using them and putting them in your path to show you, do the same thing. And sometimes he will send the opposite example in your life. He will send somebody in your life that you love and you care about and they're making a string of selfish and sinful choices. And God will put them in your path and he will use them as example in your life to show you this. Don't do that. All of this is an effort for God to try to influence you away from replacing him. It reminds me. It reminds me of an 18-year-old in a Christian home. He went to a local college. He got kind of independent. He wanted to, of course, have the perks of staying at home, but he didn't want to mind his parents' curfew. He didn't want to obey the rules. He didn't want to help around the house. And so his dad had a, had, a, had a very, very strict talk with him in the living room one night and said, Son, this is kind of your last warning. I need you to adhere to the rules. I need you to mind the curfew. I need you to do stuff around the house that I'm asking you to do. We're going to pay rent. We're doing all these things for you. I need you to cooperate with me. We're going to have consequences. And the son went up to his room. Two hours later, the father sitting inside of 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 the living room, the same recliner he just talked to his son in, watch here, and and his son comes down the stairs, and and he heads towards the door, and he looks over to his son, and his son is carrying two suitcases, a backpack, and two boxes, and his dad says, son, what's going on, where are you going, he said, I don't know where I'm going, but I'm never coming back here, kid that was raised in church, why, because I can't stand you, I can't stand your rules. And the dad got up and his lip was quivering and tears were running down his cheeks. And he did something so unorthodox, he went to the door, the front door. He didn't touch the son. Didn't stand in the son's way. You know what he did? He laid in the doorway. He laid there. And he looked up to his son and he said this, You can leave. And I'll let you leave if you want. But you'll have to step over me to do it. And that's exactly what God is doing in this passage. He's saying you can have your king, but you will have to step over Samuel. And you'll have to step over my warning. And you'll have to step over my grace. And you'll have to step over my love. And you'll have to step willfully and stubbornly over my counsel if you want your king. That is God's grace. Young people, he doesn't have to do that in your life. But he does. Quit trying to run from him. Quit trying to step over him every Friday night to go chase your king. God's not going to grab a hold of your leg. He's not going to hold on to your your, your pant bottom. and He's not going to say, don't leave, don't leave, don't leave. But you are going to have to step over your loving parents and your loving youth pastor and your loving pastor and and God's loving grace in your life if you want to walk away from him. And I'm urging you as your pastor, don't do that. Don't reject God's grace to you. You need to understand, all of us need to understand, this message tonight is God's grace for you. So then I'm thinking this. Why did God say yes? If he knew that an earthly king was so bad, why didn't he do what parents do sometimes and just, well, if your kids are going to be stubborn, I'm going to be stubborn too. Why didn't he hold his ground? Well, I got to come to this conclusion. God will sometimes answer your prayers with a yes to let you learn the hard way that what you were asking for was wrong. In other words, God's judgment on us is sometimes to answer our prayer with a yes. And that is one of the worst forms of God's judgment. Whenever he gives us what we want, When what we want is not what he wants. And that's when we find ourselves with a puggle. A king. And we get it. We got what we wanted. But we end up not wanting what we got. We all will choose a king. And what this text teaches us. Watch. Is that all earthly kings disappoint? But God is an altogether different king. We have the chance to make the choice that the Israelites didn't make, and that is a choice of faith. And we have more evidence of a faithful God than they did. We got the full canon of scripture, we got His faithful working in our life. Hey, we have the cross. And we can look to the cross and know our God, our king is not one that takes. He is one that gives. And so when you're, you're tempted to go after lesser kings, you remember. You'll be a slave to it. And why chase after a king that only takes? When you can worship and put on the throne of your heart the king of kings, who always gives. Lord, help us all ages in here to keep God on the throne of our heart as our king. Would you stand quietly, every head bowed and every eye closed?